Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Guys, over the last number of weeks, we've been walking through the parables of Jesus, explicitly kind of focusing in on the parables that reference the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. If you've been with us, you know that uh, Jesus' teaching primarily revolved around this theme of the kingdom of God. Uh, if you had to uh, like kind of give Jesus like one word to encompass the majority of his teaching while he was here on the earth, uh, I think kingdom would be a good way to reference that because he's constantly referring to this gospel of the kingdom. And he illustrates it with parables, these stories that kind of illustrate a point or illustrate a truth in order to connect uh, a, spiritual tru- a spiritual truth to the audience. And we've been walking through them. We walked through the parable of the sower, right, and the seed. And we looked at the wheat and the tares and the mustard seed and the leaven, the treasure hidden in the field, the, the pearl of great price. All of these we found in Matthew chapter 13. But there's one that we haven't really tackled yet in chapter 13, and we're going to kind of look at that this morning, but uh, not so much to dig deep into it. I felt like it served as a perfect segue to where we were going to go into Matthew chapter 25. And so with all of this in mind, if you haven't been able to uh, be here for all of the different teachings, if you haven't uh, caught up on all of the different parables that we tackled yet. We did one of the parables twice, actually, so you can listen to it two times. Um, we have all those on our website and our podcast, and just encourage you guys uh, to check that out if you get a moment. But in Matthew chapter 13, there's something called the parable of the dragnet, and uh, it's this idea of fishing that God uses to illustrate um, what will happen at the end of this age. And so I want to read the words of Jesus to you here in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 49. He says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. And so we have this really kind of happy story here, right? No, it's, it's, it's talking about the end of the age. It's talking about a coming judgment. It's talking about separation. In fact, a majority of the parables that we've looked at and a majority of the parables that we're going to continue to look at, there's this theme of separation, right? There was a separation between the wheat and the in the weeds, right? There, between the wheat and the tares. We look later on, there's a separation between the sheep and the goats. Here, they're separating good fish from bad fish at the end of the age. And this is something that doesn't really kind of have the, the same allurement as, uh, allurement? Is that a word? No, I just made that up, didn't I? You sure it's not a word? Allure, yeah, it's got an allure. I don't know. It should be a word. But, uh, you know, this idea of separation, this idea of judgment, 
isn't really what packs the door on a Sunday morning. If I'm here and saying, you know what, God is going to come and separate the good from the bad, the wicked from the righteous, and he's going to come and bring judgment upon the earth. Nobody's like, whoo, that's a happy message. That's my pastor. Amen. You know, that, that isn't really like the popular thing, but it was a popular theme in Jesus's messaging. It's a recurrent theme that comes over and over and over and over again. And I think we would be, uh, I think we would be misplaced if we didn't emphasize it the same way that Jesus did. And so I'm reading this. I'm looking at this. I'm, I'm really trying to, to, to come to terms with this. Because I know there's a lot of people that are really down with like Jesus and his message. Like in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, blessed are the poor and the meek, right? We know that people really love the whole thing about like loving your enemies. And maybe even praying for those who persecute you. You know, it's, it's something like, yeah, Jesus Oh, Jesus, we like this guy. He's all about peace. He's all about reconciliation. He's all about love. But then we get a little further on into the Sermon on the Mount, and we get to Matthew chapter 7, and he's saying, depart from me, I never knew you. All of a sudden, whoa, hold up, Jesus. He's all, all of a sudden, he's talking about those that don't bear good fruit are cast down and thrown into the fire. Whoa, what are we talking about? This is not the same Jesus that I signed up for. But the reality of it is, is that we cannot... Hear me clearly here. We cannot pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we like and listen to. This isn't an option for us to simply come and say, you know what, Jesus, I really like what you had to say about this, this, and this, but you know, I really don't like what you had to say about marriage, and I certainly don't like what you have to say about salvation coming through you and you alone. Can't we all just get along? But Jesus didn't give that option to us, did he? I think it would be ludicrous. I think it would be foolishness to embrace parts of Jesus and not everything that he said. And what he consistently comes back to is this theme of judgment and separation. And it's a sober thing. It's something that should not sit well with us. It's something that should weigh heavy upon us. Because he intended for it to do so. I think it's interesting because as I think about this and I think about the other parables that have to do with judging the wicked and the righteous at the end of the age and there's this separation that takes place. Um, it's clear to me that there isn't room for kingdom now theology. You may not be familiar with this term, but it's this idea essentially that as Christians, as the church, we're going to bring about reformation of a wicked world. And at some day when the church is good enough, that evil is going to be eradicated and Jesus is going to come back and we're going to hand him keys to a perfect universe. And it's heavily, it's heavily weighted on the fact that the church does uh, enough good. And hear me. I really truly believe, you've heard me make this statement that the kingdom of God goes where his will goes, right? We've talked about this already. I believe that we are carriers, we are, we are vessels of the kingdom of God, and where we go, his kingdom is established. But I don't want to misconstrue that with the notion that someday we're going to eradicate evil, and then Jesus is going to come and say, hey, good job, my faithful servants, thanks for doing all that, and I'm here. Our hope comes 
in a final judgment. Our hope comes with Jesus coming back and establishing his throne and eradicating evil once and for all. Because what I read here and what I read in the other parables that Jesus kind of uses to illustrate the end of the age and the end of time, he says that there is wickedness, that there is a separation that still has to take place, that not all people are going to be saved, that is, it isn't, there isn't this culmination of everybody is all happy and everything's good, but over and over and over and over again, we see this theme of separation and judgment. Woo! Pastor Nate, I love it when you preach like this. It makes me feel so happy. Excuse me, I lost my voice a couple days ago, and it's barely coming back, so thank you for being patient with me. <coughs> well, guys, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. This is going to be prominently where we're going to be for the next number of weeks as we walk through three very explicit parables that Jesus uses to talk about the end of this age and what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like at the end of this age. And it answers some questions we have about this judgment and separation thing that I think is important for us to understand. But before we get to Matthew chapter 25, I think if we looked at Matthew chapter 24, which really sets a precedence for what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25, it would be a beneficial thing. You see, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 24 what it's going to be like in the end times, at the end of this age, before his return. Jesus actually tells us things are going to get worse rather than better. And so I, I hate to be the guy that is just kind of like... Uh, sucking all the fun out of things, but the reality of it is, is that Jesus promised us that things were going to be dark. He promised us things were going to get worse. He promised an increase in wickedness as his day of returning approached. And it shouldn't catch us off guard when we see the world in a tailspin and we're left thinking of everything that's going wrong and we're discouraged by the state of the world. If anything, the believer can find some sort of encouragement in the fact that Jesus said this was going to happen and told us not to lose heart. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3, Jesus says this. <coughs> well, I guess Jesus doesn't say this, <clears throat> but he starts with this in verse 3. He says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, all of these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and be put to death. Ooh. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. This is Jesus' promise. I know that Adam was up here during communion talking about the faithfulness of God. And these are some of the things that Jesus promised. It says, you'll be handed over to be persecuted, to be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. 
Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. There's so much to unpack in the words of Jesus here. It's heavy, it's sober, and it's intentionally that way because Jesus is talking about something like the end of the world. I know it's easy for us to kind of feel like maybe that's a fairy tale or that's a fable or that's just something that maybe was imagery that, that, that was used, but these are the words of Jesus. And I believe we can hold them at face value. And I believe we must not interpret this as some kind of vivid imagery that Jesus was using to scare people to follow him, but take it as the truth that things are going to happen. We should not be alarmed by it. I'm sharing this and I'm talking about the second coming of Christ here in, in prelude to what we're going to be talking about in these parables because I, I believe it's a doctrine that many have strayed away from. It's something that isn't pivotal. It isn't crucial to our faith anymore. But do you know the early church, they, 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 were, they were kind of built upon this notion that Jesus could return at any moment. They had, a, they had a certain uh, tenacity about them uh, because they believed that Jesus was coming back. They believed him when he said that he would return again. And they thought, well, man, maybe that means in like 40 days. You know, Jesus is big on this 40-day, 40 40-night 40 thing. Maybe he's going to be back in 40 days. Uh, maybe it'll be 100 days. Maybe it'll be seven years. I don't know. But Jesus is going to come back. And they were built upon this faith and this notion that God was coming again. And I, I so want that to be alive in us. I so want that to be a driving factor that God is coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle, that it keeps us on our toes, if you will, if that we're living intentionally like Jesus might come back tomorrow. This doesn't mean that we're out here with, you know, picket fences or picket fences, picket signs. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we're, we're the crazy people on the street corner and uh, I'm up here collecting an offering saying, hey, I need all your money because the end is coming in 2020. And uh, that was a bad joke. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, something, something's happening here and, and, and we got to have to all doom and prep and load up food or something like that. That's, that's not what I'm getting at here. I just want us to live in light of the Lord's return. That it's something that's really going to happen. It's not a fairy tale. He didn't just spend the majority of his time in scripture talking about it and promising that he was coming again for us to live like he's not. The second coming of Christ is a central doctrine to Orthodox Christianity. With it comes the promise of justice. It doesn't take a scholar to see that the world that we live in is broken. When we can turn on the news and we see injustice just rampant. There's a ton of people these days that are kind of standing behind microphones and megaphones and social media handles, kind of uh, trying to proclaim this message of injustice and things needing to change, whether it be racial injustice, social injustice, economic injustice. We, we look at other parts of the world and we see slavery still uh, alive and rampant. We see hunger and famine. We see babies dying. We see evil on full scale. 
But the promise of Jesus coming again is one of God coming to eradicate evil and set wrong things right. While we strive to usher in the kingdom and we, 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 we yearn to be kingdom people wherever we go, ultimately things will not be set right when the church finally gets, it, gets its act together. The church isn't going to just <coughs> fix everything that's wrong. I believe we play a part in it. I believe God wants to use us here and now. But ultimately, when Christ returns to the earth, when he brings forth justice and judges wickedness, that is when the wrong things are going to be made right. That is when uh, injustice is going to be called into account and things are going to change. Revelation 19 gives one of my favorite pictures of Jesus. I think a lot of us have this idea of Jesus looking like that Jonathan Rumi guy, right, who plays him in The Chosen or... Uh, I mean, that's better than most. We used to have this picture downstairs at the church. Pastor Dwight used to have it in his office of this like blonde haired Jesus with blue eyes holding a little lamb and like a shepherd's crook and he had like a big gentle smile on his face. And, and I'm not saying that he, he doesn't have a smile, but I guarantee you he's not white and he probably didn't have blue eyes. <laughs> Some of you guys picture Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> When you picture of Jesus. But I love this description of Jesus. John says this in Revelation 19 verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened. And behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with which he will strike down the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of and the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, a name were written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I believe the early church had strong conviction about the return of Jesus. I'm glad they're having fun downstairs. Such a different tone between what they're doing downstairs and what we're talking about up here. But I'm thankful it's still the word of God. Some of you are like, can I go play with the kids right now? <laughs> Pastor Nate's being serious. And I just don't think the conviction grips us the same way that it gripped the early church. I say that because I believe if we really believed that God was coming again and that there was a set amount of time between here and when he's coming back. And don't let anybody fool you. We understand that no one knows the date or the hour. You're not going to find it by studying the numbers of scripture or something like that and calculate a date. People that do that are idiotic. I completely 100% stand behind that statement that they are fools. And I don't cast that judgment lightly, but Jesus himself said it. So Come on, man. <laughs> but when we think about the fact that Jesus is coming back again, I want you to think about this. We 
at this moment in history, this moment right here at 11.14, or that clock's wrong, 11.16 on May 7th, 2023, I can't believe I just got the date right, here in this service, are closer to the return of Jesus than any other people in all of humanity. There is a, a definitive moment. There is a set time where things are going to come to an end, where the book and this chapter is going to close, and this age is going to end. And God talks about the fact that heaven and earth are going to be rolled up like a scroll, and we will face judgment. There is time that is coming where there is not going to be the opportunity to sing songs on a Sunday morning. There's going to be an opportunity where there's not, an, there's going to be a time where there's not an opportunity for us to come together for an alpha or a deeper project or a prayer meeting or, or joining together in prayer for the lost or a prayer for Israel. There's going to be a time where all of this comes to a close and we will have to give an account and there will be a separation the crazy thing here is that the fish doesn't decide whether it's good or bad. We live in a society, we live in a culture where we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told uh, what's good or what's bad. We want to define those things for ourselves, but inevitably the fisherman gets to determine whether or not the fish is good to keep. And he separates it based upon his criteria or not the fishes. And this is going to happen to us one day. And I say that we don't have the same conviction that the early church had about Christ's return because our lives would look drastically different. Our church services would look drastically different. The way that you engage in evangelism would look drastically different if we really believed that God was coming back and that he could come back whenever he wants to. I think some people have taken this notion of that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come as somehow uh, this notion that the great commission has to be fulfilled in order for Jesus to come back. Um, but that was not a conviction that the early church had. You see that throughout all of their teachings. You see that throughout all of their, their writings. I think it's good motivation. I think it's something that should be a driving force, but I don't think we should place contingency that God cannot come back because, you know, we haven't calculated exactly what it means for every single nation to be reached with the gospel. I think it should be motivation, but I don't want us to lose heart that God can come back when he wants to come back. There's a lot to that, and I would love to talk more about that at a different time. I continually come back to this passage of scripture. Because Peter wrote these words that I'm about to read uh, just a few decades after Jesus had died. I think some people even peg it as 30 years after Jesus had died and after uh, the church had been established and Peter is writing these words. And he says this, this is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Remember, he's writing this maybe 30 to 70 years after Jesus has died and, uh, and said that he was coming again. So relatively recently, when we're reading this, we're reading it some 2,000 years later, give or take 
a few, <laughs> uh, just to put it into perspective, but this isn't a new issue. The church has for a long time struggled with this idea that Jesus was coming again. But he goes into verse three, he says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. I know this is heavy, guys, but it goes on. It says, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as, an, as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Take note of this. God says he's coming back. He's coming back. There is judgment stored up. So what holy and godly lives should we live? Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth as he has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends... While you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of scripture. This will result in their destruction. You already know these things, dear friends, so be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. I know I just read a letter, but that letter was written to the first century church that was struggling with this notion that God had not yet come back. And they were left questioning, is he really going to keep his promise? Is he really going to return? Because he hasn't done, that, he hasn't done it yet. So, I mean, how long do we sit about waiting and we receive this instruction to be pure and blameless, to live peaceable lives in the midst of a godless culture because Jesus is coming to judge the world. I struggled here because I wanted to dig deeper into Matthew chapter 24 and continue to talk about this reality. And there's so much in Matthew chapter 25 that I want to unpack from this next parable. But I'm going to do my best to keep it concise this morning. 
as we turn to Matthew chapter 25. Now I spent quite a while on my introduction, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. And I'm reading a lot of scripture. I, I don't apologize for that. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go, rather, to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is, a, this is an interesting parable here. I think for us to really understand it, uh, we need to have some kind of cultural context of what Jesus is referencing here in terms of a wedding of the stature of, of royalty. Now, there were three stages to a Jewish wedding in, in his day. Uh, they were engagement, much like we have, right? Like we pop a question, we pop a ring, they get engaged. There's something called betrothal. And that was, um, so hold on, I should backtrack. The engagement was not the same as us popping the question like with a ring today. That's not how they did it back then. I realized that was probably confusing. We like get down on one knee and we have a ring and we say, hey, will you marry me? And they say yes and they cry and it's beautiful and somebody takes pictures and woo, right? Isn't that... Isn't that how it goes, right? I've seen movies. I did it once. It happened. She said yes, eventually. And it was great. <laughs> to be clear, Kelly said yes the first time I asked her to marry me. Not the first time I asked her to go out with me, but the first time I asked her to marry me, she said yes. <laughs> uh, in Jesus' day, engagement would have been something that would have been set up by fathers. There'd be a dowry involved, and it was kind of this formal agreement between parties that, hey, these two are going to get married. And so that would be the first stage of a Jewish wedding, and that was the engagement. The second was this uh, concept of betrothal, and it was this ceremony where vows are made. It'd be much like our kind of wedding ceremonies where, you know, we stand, vows are given and exchanged. Um, but it was... Uh, a little more drug on than that. It wasn't like, okay, they're married now. The third, stage, the third stage of the Jewish wedding was the marriage. And it happened approximately one year later, and that would be when the bridegroom would come at an unexpected time to claim his bride. There'd be some foreknowledge there, and there would be a, a little bit of a heads up. Um, so they, they weren't completely caught off guard. But it would come unexpectedly, and the bridegroom would come in his timing to come and claim his bride. And so when we see these bridesmaids, these ten virgins that are illuminating the way for the bride to come to his bridegroom, 
this is what, this is kind of pieces in the bridegroom to come to his bride. There you go. Thanks for calling me out. If I ever say something wrong, I can so easily look over here at the front part of the church and they'll be like, no, you said that wrong. Fix it. Um, but we see that here and we see, um, we see kind of those stages playing out. And so this is what's happening in the context of the story. It's not this idea of like polygamy where Jesus is coming back for his 10 wives or something like that. Uh, these bridesmaids were there, or these virgins were there to illuminate a way for the bridegroom to come to his bride. They had responsibility. They had something to do. And this is what was taking place uh, in this story that Jesus is talking about here. But I want to be very clear, and I'm not going to go into all the little details of all the little tidbits of this story and try to pull a bunch of things out because I've done that before and I think it's a powerful story. But at the end of the day, this is a parable about being ready for when Jesus shows up. Plain and simple. I don't know if any of you have ever gotten a phone call that somebody was going to come over unexpectedly to your house. And if you're like me, um, my house is not clean all of the time. I have two small children. And so I would reckon to say that my house is not clean the majority of the time. In fact, if you come into my house and it is clean, it's probably because I spent the first, the last 15 minutes throwing things into closets and <laughs> under beds and shoving them all into our room and locking the door. And uh, we kind of know how that is, right? That's real life. That's not just me. That's other people too, right? Please make me feel better about myself. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so for us, at least, we have a little bit of a heads up because we can see people like driving up into the church. And I, I don't know how many times this, this has happened. Um, recently, I can account for a few different times where I've seen somebody unexpectedly kind of drop by. At least I have a little bit of notion because I can see them park their car and walk up the stairs and come knocking on the door. And we're in this hurried mess to try to clean things up. But the reality of it is if you drop by unexpectedly, you're going to see the state of my house as it actually is. There isn't time for me to kind of clean things up and get things in order in order to impress you. And the same is true with Jesus. When he comes again, and at his return, or as the author of Hebrews tells us, that it is appointed, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. When we're standing before God, there's not time for us to fix things up and declutter, if you will. There's not time for us to rearrange and, and, and do the dirty work of scrubbing the baseboards um, of our life. <laughs> it is what it is. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, there are people here that actually scrub their baseboards. I don't know if I've ever scrubbed the baseboards of my house. That is a disgusting fact that I just let you guys know. Sorry. <laughs> you guys get what I'm saying, though? Is that connecting with you today? <coughs> this isn't the parable between the good and the bad virgins. They're all virgins. Which you understand to mean like a pretty good thing most of the time in scripture. It's a parable between the wise and the foolish. From those that were ready and those that weren't. And I think very explicitly we can see that Jesus makes a correlation in verse 12 that their lack of oil 
is directly connected with the fact that they do not know Jesus well. They do not know Jesus intimately. They do not know Jesus as they ought to know him. And there's a result there that ends with them being locked out of the wedding feast and the door not being open to them. And I could talk about a lot of different things. We could talk about the symbolism of the Holy Spirit and we could talk about uh, all the different references of oil throughout the Old and the New Testaments and, and kind of do a deep dive into that. But very frankly today, the problem is here that they did not know Jesus and Jesus did not know them. It's the same thing that we see in Matthew chapter 7 where there's tons of people that did stuff in the name of the Lord. They said, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform signs and wonders and miracles and heal in your name? And he still says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's very similar to these words here. Where he says, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. What we have is a picture in this parable of people that were willing to go through the motions but not fight for the place of intimacy in knowing God personally. What we see here is when the cry comes that the bridegroom is coming, behold, go out and meet him, they arose and all began to trim their lamps. They all began to go through the motions they were more concerned about preparation outside rather than they were about preparation inside. And I believe churches are filled to the brim with people that are willing to go through the motions and do the things, but there's nothing of, of flammable substance to actually burn before the Lord because it's not been cultivated in the place of intimately knowing God. my simple encouragement to us today to take out of this parable is that we wouldn't be preoccupied with going through the motions, that we wouldn't be preoccupied about trimming our lamps and making sure that we look and fit the part, that we miss out on the fact that when the bridegroom comes, we're ready to meet him with jars full of oil, with a lamp that's ready to burn, with something of substance to offer him, because on the outside, they looked pretty identical. You know, they, they looked, you know, we don't see a rebuke here for them falling asleep, for them resting. That isn't the rebuke here. The rebuke isn't that they weren't, uh, that they didn't know when he was coming back. That was given. That was something that he consistently says. The rebuke here is that they weren't ready for him when he returned. Matthew 24 ends with this really, uh, this really intense parable of a, a wise and foolish servant. Where Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven being like when God comes back unexpectedly, will he find the wise servant that does what is expected of him, keeping things in order and the house in order, or will he find a foolish and lazy servant? They get cast out to darkness where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. My prayer for myself and my prayer for you today, friends, is that we would be sure that we have oil in our lamps. Oil to burn. And the only way that we cultivate that, I believe, is by spending time with the Lord. 
uh, by intimately knowing him. See, you can't get that oil by just coming to church. You can't get that oil just by filling out a tithe or an offering envelope. You don't get that oil just by going on a missions trip or going to the prayer meeting or putting in your dues and paying your tithe. That oil can only be generated when you genuinely have a personal relationship with the Lord. And I think it's interesting here that the foolish virgins come to the wise and say, hey, give us some of your oil. You see, your pastor, your mother, your father, your friends, they can't get oil for you. It's something that you can only get for yourself. You can't depend upon someone else's relationship with God to sustain you in the end because it will not work. I'm excited to jump into the rest of these parables. I'm excited to continue to ask these questions of what it means to live in light of the Lord's return. My prayer for us today is that we wouldn't fool ourselves into talking ourselves into us being okay, of being in right relationship with God if we're not, because I believe it's too dangerous to do so. Not a single one of us is promised tomorrow. And hear me, I'm not the doom and gloom scare you into heaven and out of hell kind of preacher. I'm not, that, that's not my mentality. I, 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 it's not something that I love, but it's something that I believe if I'm going to preach the scriptures, I have to be faithful to the things that Jesus taught. And he taught about a real separation that was going to come at the end of the age. He told us that there was a real separation that's going to happen when we die. And I'm thankful that it's not built upon what we've done or not done. It's built upon his righteousness alone. But his sacrifice paved a way for us to come close to God. His blood being spilt, the agony that he went through on Calvary opened the door for us. But he doesn't force us to stay in relationship and stay in fellowship with him and to really know him intimately and personally. I believe that God's a gentleman and he doesn't just rip us into relationship with him. I believe it's an open invitation for us to enter into. I would so desire for each and every one of us to do that. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.